0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rubina podcast. New Life Church is one family many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Rhythms, a series exploring the essence of Christian life, asking, who am I becoming? It's about personal formation, shaping our lives of Christian values, moving beyond the mere thoughts of God to practical habits and disciplines that mirror Jesus. These are our Rhythms. We pray this message is a blessing. Would you stand to your feet as we read the word of God together? Would you stand with me? Someone uh, said to me after I did this last time, Do we stand when we read the word of God now? I'm like, Well, when I'm preaching, that's what we're going to do. I hope that's okay and hope everyone online is standing with us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says this Do not store up for yourselves treasures. Everyone say treasures. On earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself. Close, that was good. In heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your is there, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before your Word in humility today. Jesus, when you stood on the mountain and you preached this sermon thousands of years ago, I know that you knew we would be here one day. You didn't just have in mind the audience in front of you, but all people. Because you want all people to know life and life to its fullness, so Father, would you help us to break, uh, to to not allow pain, hurt, or uh, issues with finances and money in the past limit from what we want, to, what we need to hear from you today. Holy Spirit, moving power, less of me, more of you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, "Amen." Amen. You can grab yourself a seat. I wonder who, you, if you know who this man on the screen is. Does anyone know who this is? This man's name is Alfred Nobel. And Alfred Nobel lived in the 1800s. Alfred Nobel was a man who had, by the time he died, 355 patents, very rich man. Uh, He was a multi-millionaire, a modern day equivalent of a billionaire. He would have been a billionaire if he was alive today. He came up with 355 patents, one of which was how to take liquid nitrogen and solidify it into what we now call dynamite what we call dynamite. He was the inventor of dynamite, transformed the mining industry, transformed the landscaping industry. It also transformed warfare as we know it. Well, before the atom bomb and guided missiles, dynamite became this new, excuse the pun, explosive form of warfare, right? Where it was horrendous, the amount of people that would be affected, killed and wiped out as military commanders started to use dynamite in war. But he also became a very rich man because of it. He had factories producing dynamite. One factory exploded, killed a lot of people, including his younger brother. His life had both success and tragedy, a part of it. And Alfred had a moment that not many of us will ever have, where he actually was believed to be dead before he died. His brother, Ludwig, died in France, and the newspaper articles thought it was him that died. And so they wrote an obituary for Alfred Nobel in the newspaper and he got to read his obituary, which is what they write, for those of you who aren't aware, before he died. The thing that they write after you're dead, he got to read before he died. And he read this newspaper article that said, Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death is dead. And there was a moment where he was like, this is what I'm known for. I'm one of the richest men alive but my life is going to be known to be the merchant of death. And so what he did propelled and inspired by this unique moment is he took 95% of his wealth, he put it into a hedge fund and he started a prize, an annual prize giving moment where he would give out five awards for people who had bettered humanity in physics, medicine, in chemistry, literature, economics, and peace. We know this award today as the Nobel Peace Prize. And the whole heart behind the Nobel Prize was Alfred Nobel's desire to change his legacy from being one of destruction to one of blessing for the world. Here's an interesting question if someone was to write your obituary today, what would your legacy be? If they were to sum up, not only how you acquired your resources, but how you spent your resources, what would your legacy be? A thinker, a lady by the name of Ann Lap, says this, how you spend your money casts a vote for the kind of world you want. Let me say this again. How you spend your money casts a vote for the kind of world you want. We decry corporate greed and big business and then wantonly continue to purchase from Amazon. We we don't like the idea of injustice and slavery, but never question where our clothes are made. How you spend your money is a vote for the kind of world you want. It's challenging, isn't it? particularly in a world that doesn't ask us to be conscientious about how we spend our finances, but it does ask us to be deliberate in how we accumulate them. I'm overwhelmed at times by financial advice. It comes at you from TikTok, from Reels, from Stories, from YouTube, from David Kosh. You know, I think he's retired now, but like when I was watching Free to Pay, you know, today's show, start, it's coming at us from everywhere. You're too late to invest in crypto, but it's still the right time to invest in crypto. You're like, what should I do? But ultimately all these messages seem to be saying the same thing. Build your kingdom, accumulate your wealth so that you might retire and have something to give to your kids. And the question I would ask is that narrative, which I would suggest is the dominant narrative of our day and age. In fact, if you're young, you will know this term called FIRE, which is you know, everyone's aspiration at the moment. FIRE literally means financially independent, retire early, right? Some of you who are retired, like I wish someone told me that 40 years ago, that would have been fantastic. And it's like this aim, that that's what it means to be successful, to be financially independent and retired young. But how many of us, with this rat race of the world we live in feel actually free? How many of you, when you think about finance and generosity, how many of you feel like you are living an abundant life? See, Jesus came with this prophetic word in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says this, I came to give you life and life to the full. But not many of us seem to be living that life. And I wonder if it's because we're building our kingdom the way the world has called us to, rather than seeing God's kingdom come to earth. Today, friends, we're going to talk about finances and generosity. And usually when I say that, people will go, oh, the church, talking about money again. And I would suggest we actually speak about money here at New Life, at least, a lot less than Jesus did. Jesus spoke about money. 15% of all His teachings was about money. One out of every 10 Gospel Scriptures is about money. And 16 out of the 38 parables Jesus shared was about money. Guess how many parables Jesus shared about sex? Zero. But we talk about it a lot, don't we? Timothy Keller says this. Jesus warns people far more about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis. This could easily be a problem for me. I've been a pastor for 12 years in this church and I cannot tell you, I could probably count on two fingers the amount of times someone come down the front weeping, going, can you pray for my greed? No one really. When was the last time you were in a small group? And we said, hey, what can, how can we pray for everybody this week? Or you're talking to someone, hey, is there anything we can talk about? Everyone's like, yeah, money's just got a real hold of my life. I just want to be more generous with it. That's not really where we go to when we think of the greatest problem of our day and age. But I want to suggest to you, friends, that the idol of the Gold Coast is lifestyle. Is that we, we moved to the Gold Coast, we've grown up on the Gold Coast, we stay on the Gold Coast because it's a lifestyle. There's no real major industry here other than tourism and entrepreneurship and small businesses. We stick around and, and then we begin to serve this idea of actually the purpose of my life is to build a lifestyle for me and for my kids. And Jesus is offering us a different way today. He's offering a different truth. You see, there's The Barefoot Investor, read his book. I love The Barefoot Investor, I think it's helpful. There's a big book actually called The Barefoot Disciple where someone takes that thinking, applies scripture to it and like empowers people how to live, uh, you know, empowered and financially free. And then the third person that I actually want us to look to it today is The Barefoot Messiah who actually gives us some financial advice. In Matthew chapter six, the only rule command he gives us about finances is he says this, do not, doesn't sound opinionative, does it? It Sounds Jesus being pretty direct. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What's Jesus talking about here? What's he saying? What's he ministering? I think he's challenging our financial investment strategy. There was this guy who shaped a lot of my thinking, my teaching, like um, a lot of my formation growing up was through a thinker and, and preacher named John Ortberg. And John Ortberg told a story about his grandma who taught him to play Monopoly. Do we have any Monopoly lovers in the room? Like, no, hands up if you love Monopoly. Uh, Fantastic. I hate Monopoly, just so you know. I think, number one, did you know Monopoly was actually a game invented in the early 1900s to teach people about greed? Anyway, disregard. But... 8am didn't get it, man. 10am. You get freestyle. No, Monopoly. My wife bought me Monopoly about 10 years ago for Valentine's Day. She beat me and then we've never played it again. So that's why I don't like Monopoly because uh, I'm not very good at it. But John Otberg's grandma wanted to teach him how to play Monopoly when he was five. And he's not like some of the grandmas in this room who were like, oh, you beat me when really you're pulling the punches. She was, if you're going to win at Monopoly, you're going to have to win at Monopoly. And so she would wipe the floor with him every single time, right? And he's like, Grandma, why won't you let me win? So this is the real world, son. No one's handing out free money. And so she would learn, he would learn every day about every time they played about how to play Monopoly a bit better. And so one day he finally won and he runs around the living room. I'll oh, be Grandma. I'm the best there is, right? And uh, he comes up to Grandma and says, Grandma, this is the real world. You know. She goes, I've got one last lesson for you, son. And he goes, what is it? She takes all the money, all the houses, all the hotels, all the properties. She puts it on the board, folds the board up. That's actually not how you pack rate monopoly. And my, my OCD is like triggering there. So it's like that's not it. So you fold the board up, then you put that in the box, and all the properties and money go on top or under the board, however you see fit. Then she puts the box back on, she puts it in the cupboard and she looks at him and goes, Here's the most important lesson. It all goes back in the box. It all." Goes back in the box. Friends, some of us are trying to learn how to play a monopoly by the world's standards, and we've forgotten the eternal truth that Jesus is trying to communicate. It all goes back in the box. It will all be dust and mist. What Jesus is trying to say is do not have a short term investment strategy. Because it all goes back at, well Mark, I'd like you to see, put my property portfolio back into a box. That's pretty impossible. That's, you understand the principle of what Jesus is trying to say. Ultimately, He's questioning this idea of kingdoms. That the world around us says this, use your money, use your resources, use everything you have to be financially independent, to build the financial lifestyle, the holiday routine and everything you like. And then make sure you build enough into your world that when you die, you have something to pass on to your children. And I wonder if the best thing we can give our kids is a big inheritance or a vision of a better kingdom. A kingdom that will not last, it will not fade and will not die. Friends, there are many financial advisors in this church. What a what a great and godly profession, helping people have wisdom around their money. That's awesome. But any financial advisor will tell you, don't think short term, think long term. And what's Jesus saying is he's agreeing with them. But he's changing what long-term means, isn't he? He's saying, You just want to think long term, don't think about your retirement, don't think about your inheritance. Think about your eternity. It's a challenging thing, isn't it? Because we get to have a scorecard in this world that says my kingdom, my worth, my value is on how much I have. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, actually, I'm flipping the script. There is an eternal investment that you'll one day, everything in this world, all your money, everything you've owned, every clothing, it all goes back into the box and you'll stand in a kingdom where the only thing that will truly be counted as worth is that which has been built for eternal glory and weight. I wonder how many of our obituaries would read, they built the kingdom of God. So what's Jesus' advice? Instead, store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Is this because Jesus is up there going, man, we need more financial resources in heaven. Let me do a really good pitch. No, it's because of this. He knows the power of money. The ancients say it like this, money is like seawater, the more you drink, the thirstier you get. Is it just me? Am I the only one that's still foolish enough thinking that if I have one more sip, it'll get different? See, Jesus' financial strategy here is not about kingdom resourcing, it's about kingdom freedom that we are gripped in our day and age by so many financial reports and investment strategies and invitations to step into a greater life and get rich quick schemes that we forget that there is something better to build than just our financial security in this world. It's an eternal kingdom where the God of heaven and earth came and said, the kingdom of heaven is like and gave us visions of a kingdom where there is no needy, there is no poor, where there is no more tyranny or fear or pain or violence and an invitation which says this, will you give your life to this? And we still fall into the deception that my life is about my comfort, my kids' comfort. It's about chasing everything I can to be here and now. And Jesus says, let me invite you into there and thereafter. Friends, which kingdom is obsessing your vision, your heart, even your strategy for your family? Which kingdom has has gripped you with a vision so compelling you know that if it came about, it would change everyone's reality, not just yours? Jesus says, because where your heart is, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's He saying here? He's giving us a basic financial principle that we're all investing in some kingdom somewhere. Which kingdom do we actually care about? It's a budget line. It's an expense line. It's a report in our bank account. He says, basically, I can tell where your heart really is because our treasure follows our heart and our heart follows our treasure. A couple of years ago, we had the crypto boom, which if you don't know what cryptocurrency is, you are blessed. Um, and there's this, that's debatable, I realise. Some people are like, oh, I'm just my own grief. Someone said to me, hey, you should get into crypto. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I heard these stories of people that put $50 in like 15 years ago and now they're like, you know, multimillionaires. So I'm like, oh, put $50. So I said to my friend, you know, where, where should I invest? And he said, you should invest in something called Red Fox. Someone in the first service people were like, are you saying Red Frogs? No, no, no. Red Fox. Anyone heard of Red Fox before? like two of us, but exactly, right? <laughs> like, and, and no, it's fine. It's, it's actually an industry, from my limited understanding, that is in, entrepreneurial and innovating around virtual reality. And the interesting thing was, before I put $50 into cryptocurrency around Red Fox, I did not care about virtual reality. I loved my own reality. I didn't need another one. And so I, I'd never been in it, never done much with it. But as soon as... I had my hope of $50 becoming a multimillionaire, investing in Red Fox. Man, I was the biggest evangelist for Red Fox in the world. I was like, have you guys heard about Red Fox? Doing some pretty cool things, you should check it out. I'm not saying anything, but it's on the verge of becoming massive. And then I'd get involved in thinking about virtual reality and how it could change everything. Why? Because isn't it true that where we start to spend our money, our heart follows. Your local coffee shop, you're pretty opinionated when they change baristas, aren't you? Why, is it because you care? No, it's because that's where you're investing your money for a good coffee, right? It's in daycares. People don't care about daycares till they start paying daycares. We don't actually start caring about big corporations till we start actually investing in apples and iPhones and all these things. Then we, it's interesting, isn't it? How our heart follows our money. So Jesus kind of giving us a shortcut to short circuit the systems of this world saying your heart follows your treasure. So friends, where is your heart really? Not who were your hands lifted to, but who was actually worshipped in our budget lines? Who? Because so often in my life, it's me. It's my comfort, my kingdom. J.D. Greer says it like this. Whose kingdom are you building, yours or God's? So quite simply, friends, the principle of generosity that Jesus is introducing to us to is this. You invest your treasure. It'll be on the next slide. You invest your treasure in what is most valuable to the kingdom you're building the narrative you are inhabiting and the master you serve. You invest your treasure to what is most valuable to the kingdom you are building, the narrative you are inhabiting and the master you serve. Which is why our finances are some of the most important spiritual rhythms of our life because they actually dictate the reality of the spiritual health of our hearts. Jesus casts a vision for us and says, there's a better place for our treasure. It's in his kingdom. So what does it look like? What does it look like to have a rhythm of generosity that prioritises the kingdom of heaven? And I just want to pause here and just want to note, I grew up in the church. It's like some of you, or maybe some of you didn't grow up in the church, but you've been to churches where when we talk about generous and finances and stuff like this, you start uh, you like something comes inside of you starts to close up, and and I can just I can understand that. When I was growing up, a lot of times I was told that if I gave money to church, I was building for myself a mansion in heaven, which is just nowhere in the Bible. Or if I gave money to the things that the pastor told me to give money to, then I would be getting better cars, that's just nowhere in the Bible. And some of us have heard such bad teaching on what the Bible says about money. We've chosen to actually control it rather than entrust it to God. And I just wanna say it's actually really valid. And I'm just really sorry for moments when you've sat under biblical teaching that wasn't actually biblical. And if it's ever happened in this church, I'm so sorry because Jesus's way of generosity is not meant to be a burden, but a blessing. Not that we would get, but that we would be a part. And when we wanna see what rhythms of generosity look like, I wanna actually take us to the early church. There's this great line about the early church's rhythm of generosity, it says this, the ancient world was generous with their bodies and stingy with their money. The Christians, however, were stingy with their bodies and generous with their money. And it changed the world. What would they say of us? So I want to argue today from scripture that there are three things that the early church did that modeled investing in God's kingdom. They were generous to the poor, they were generous to each other, they were generous to the church. Want to be very clear: they were generous to the poor, they were generous to each other, they were generous to God's church. Any teaching about biblical generosity and finances, if you're new to Christianity today or new to church, I wanna be so clear about this. Any teaching on TV or in this building or in any other building that doesn't say financial generosity in God's kingdom prioritises the poor is not biblical. It is so clear in Jesus' teaching that His preference of generosity in His kingdom is for the poor. Because He goes on and on about it, doesn't He? He says, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. In fact, what I want to do, I want to give you just some Scriptures that aren't the total conversation, but introductions to the conversation about where this comes from. If you look at these Scriptures in your Bible, we see in Matthew chapter 6, verse one to four, where we spent a couple of weeks ago, Jesus doesn't suggest giving, He assumes it. He says, when you give to the needy, When you are charitable, not if you are charitable, there was an assumption about Jewish culture and about Jesus' disciples that giving to the poor and the needy was a regular rhythm. It wasn't suggested, it was just, oh, this is what we do. In Luke chapter 12, verse 33, he challenges them and he says this, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now this was about challenging people's place of money in their life. But the way he challenged wasn't sell your possessions and give it to the temple, sell your possessions and give it to me. He said, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, we even see in the early church that there were no needy people among them, which meant that the church was a place that needy people could come and they would either receive what they needed or the support and the guidance they would need to become financially stable again. This was a revolutionary way of thinking in the ancient world. And friends, what I love so much about what we do through the work of New Life Care is there is a reputation of this church of caring for the poor. When you buy groceries and bring them in on Sunday and you give them to our our trolley, we have so many people come to our front office and say, hey, do you have any food that we can have during the week? And because of your generosity, we're able to do that. That's not just through the church, it's also spontaneously. I remember I was walking down through Melbourne with my sons who were like four and two and there was a moment where there was a, a, a person who at that stage of their life was homeless and like, you know, my thinking, my institutionalised thinking was, oh, don't give money to the homeless people because we don't know what they're going to do with it and they might use it to buy drugs or alcohol. And I was starting to like prepare myself to teach our cho- my children what that meant to process that and I just got convicted that what I was actually going to be teaching my children was suspicion, not generosity. And so like, if I'm like, okay, so I don't know if if money's helpful here. So I'm like, well, why not go buy food? But how many times we just walk past needy and we make their own financial decisions or judgments for them rather than going, well, what does generosity look like here? Not walking away look like. This is the heart of the church. Friends, what is your financial rhythm of generosity to the poor? Maybe you have a compassion child. Maybe you have a couple of compassion children. Maybe you're partnering with local organizations that prioritize the poor. May there be a rhythm in our life that tells the world the poor are prioritizing the kingdom of God? The second thing, they would give to each other so generously. In Acts chapter 2, not only, but Acts chapter 4, we see again 1 Timothy 6, verse 18 to 17. Um, that should be 17 to 18. Hey, I'm not great at PowerPoint, but you get the intention. Romans 12, verse 13. These are all verses that indicate the early church were not only encouraged, but gave examples that if there were needy people among them, hey, I can't pay my insurance, then other people would step in and take on that burden of responsibility. Acts chapter four tells us that actually some of the believers sold their property portfolios to support others. Why? Because it wasn't about their kingdom, it was about His kingdom coming to earth. And friends, that's challenging. What I'm not saying here today is, is that the next step for you to feel less guilty about generosity is go sell everything you're having. It's actually to ask yourself the, the question, Jesus, am I responding generously to these rhythms of the poor and to others in our community? When someone in your world goes through something hard, are you, are you cooking meals and dropping them off at their house? Are you supporting one another or are we just transactional in nature? Are we generous with our lives? And the final one that we see rhythmically in the early church is that they would give to the mission of God through the local church. Now this is hard and this is the one that people are like, I knew he would get to this one. We were always coming here. Friends, I've wrestled with this for most of January. And as your pastor and the shepherd of this location, i I just, I just say this, there is no way to escape the biblical example of God's people prioritising God's mission through His church. It is so clearly there. And I think for many Christians and followers of Christ, it's become optional. And there is no indication of that in Scripture. But I just wanna give us a scriptural unpacking of this. You may have heard that giving to the local church is called tithes and offerings. And if you are a non-Christian or new to church, maybe you just thought that was us speaking in tongues during that moment. You're like, don't know what that is, but good for you who do, right? Tithes is actually a biblical word that comes back from Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham comes into uh, someone named Melchizedek, believed to be a representative of God in that moment. And he encounters the goodness of God so much that he gives a tenth of everything he has. A tithe just simply meant a tenth of everything he had. He gives a tenth in worship of God's provision and God's guidance in that moment. Then the book of Leviticus, what we see happen is that the Israelites who are in slavery in Egypt get delivered out of Egypt. And as they come out of Egypt, God has to institute a law to a lawless society. And He wants to prioritise generosity for them. And He says to them, I know the human heart is going to be weighted towards greed. So I'm going to mandate generosity, not because God needed, but because we needed." And so he said, a tenth of all of your crops, all of your produce, all of your earnings from that year, give it towards the mission of God to the work of the temple of God. Now this was a rhythm of the ancient society. They would rhythmically take a tenth of their earnings first and foremost and set it aside for God. They would give it through the local temple. In fact, there were various ideas of tithes, but I'll get into that another time. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole. We see it again in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. And again in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God actually challenges the Israelites saying, you have not been given, as I said, I need you to give. Greed has occupied your heart. You are robbing God. Trust me with your generosity and we will see blessing come to this earth. But the problem with this is, is that there is almost nowhere in the New Testament, if I would say nowhere in the New Testament, where Jesus says the tithe still stands. That actually, it doesn't seem like Jesus says, if you're going to give it to the local church, it's a tithe, it's a 10%. Some of you are like, I knew it. This is the best news ever. It's actually way worse than that. In the New Testament, they have this principle where they're like, all I have is God. Jesus, all I have is God. So, You tell me and I'll I'll do it. So they would sell everything and how to give it to the poor. Why? Because the Spirit prompted them to. But here's where we go with this. So often it's people like, well, actually the tithe is no longer New Testament. So until God tells me to, I'll do nothing rather than realising actually the rhythm was, even if God doesn't, I know that the habit is generosity. And so, what we actually see in the early church in all these scriptures on the screen, one of them is repeated. I'm sorry about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 to 4, Paul encourages them to set aside their a portion of their wage, at, like at the start of the week when they first get it, to give towards the mission of the global and local church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 9, Paul comes in and says, "Guys, why are you not being generous towards God's mission through a local church? Like, what what is your reason for doing this? Because the Macedonians who are a lot poorer than you." They're giving you guys in Corinth. And so I just want to know: like, is it because you have too much money that you don't want to be generous? Because that's not the way of God's people. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 18 and in Galatians chapter 6, God Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and saying, Hey, remember that people who've been set aside to preach the word of God and pass to God's people, hey, remember they also need to live as well. And, and, and it's weird being a pastor on staff saying this, but there's a biblical precedence for the Church of God supporting those who are working for the Church of God. Now, I just wanna say this real quick. I said at the end of the last service, but I wanna be clear. Some of you do not trust churches because of how you've seen pastors handle money. And once again, I think that's really valid. Here at this church, the elders and council are really generous and loving towards our staff that actually there is no staff here who is allowed or should be taking money from anybody because we receive our wage through an accountable system. And there have been churches I've been in the past where it was kind of kosher for people to walk up to the pastor after the service and be like, hey, you know, shout your wife something nice this week or something like that. So I was be clear, we don't do that at New Life because we aren't talking about generosity to a pastor. We're talking about generosity to a kingdom that's got accountability and processes around how things are decided. And I wanna be clear here because I know some of us have trust around, are we just talking about people earning more money? No, no, we're talking about a rhythm that sets us into freedom, not pastors and the workers for the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 goes into this again and it actually goes and says, hey, you know what? Do not give under compulsion, but out of joy. What's, what's Paul trying to say there? Well, he unpacks it a little bit more here. Since you excel in every way, Paul writes, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you. This is really tricky of Paul. He goes, Guys, I'm not telling you you have to do something. But, he says, I want to test the sincerity of your love, which is almost worse than a command, by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so you through His poverty might become rich. What's Paul doing here? He's saying, when you understand the generosity of the Gospel, it is evidenced in the generosity of your life. The most generous people in the Kingdom of God are those who have being able to have a revelation of how generous God has been to them. Now when I say generous, I'm not meaning an amount, I'm meaning a lifestyle. I was blessed at before Christmas, there's a man that I know in our church who, can I be honest? he's one of the people we need to be generous to. He's just walking through difficulty and hard times and, and like bills coming out of their ears and hospitals and all this stuff. And he came up to me just for Christmas and he, he, he did what I said not to do, but I'll, I'll explain it. He, he slipped a bunch of money into my hand. He said, you make sure that this makes its way to someone who is really in need, who can't afford Christmas this year. And Bradley Foote and I, we talked about it together and we were able to prioritise that, but it wasn't because he had, it's because he responded. And I'm like, that's the gospel. That actually, when we respond to Jesus, we go, Jesus, you gave up the riches of heaven because you saw my poverty, you saw my sin, you saw my debt and you gave me heaven's riches. So now my life is a response of generosity to you. How many of us preach the gospel with the generosity of our lives? to to the people God cares about, the poor, to each other, people in our world and to God's church. Too often we allow the narrative of greed to rob us of the blessing of generosity. So what I wanna just be clear about today is just I wanna ask, what is your rhythm of generosity to the poor, to each other, to the church? Sarah and I, start of every year, we believe that the tithes, whilst an Old Testament command, we treat it as a New Testament principle. And so we, we I, I realise this is like, Michael, you're telling everyone you're going to rob us of heaven's reward. I think it's as helpful. So we use 10% as the floor of our generosity. And then we then go, okay, God, where are you calling us to be generous to the poor? Where are you calling us to build into our budget? Because friends, I believe that my generosity isn't spontaneous, it's principled. And so it's in our budget. Why? Here's why. Because I'm greedy. Is that okay? Can I say that? I struggle with greed. So if I don't build in a discipline of it, I'll justify not doing it. Because this week, after I preached this message in New York Brisbane, I was backing out of my driveway. And I don't know who thought they could park in my driveway without asking me, but it was my wife's friend who was over for coffee, and I reversed into their Tesla. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And uh, it's that moment, I was like, all right, what are we going to cut back on our budget? And after preaching on generosity in Brisbane, there was just this whisper. I don't know if you've ever heard it. You're like, maybe you could give a little less, but keep Netflix. Maybe you could give a little less, but boy, those daily coffees are good. And I'm like, oh God, this is greed. Greed says that in times of tightness, generosity goes first, not my lifestyle. Now, we're fine. Once again, I, I said the thing before because sometimes pastors can hop up and say, hey, we just happened this week. So I'm like, hey, let me help you with that. No, 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 we're fine. Got comprehensive insurance, God is good. But the thing which will rob you from freedom generosity, with generosity is greed, friends. It's not having enough. Not believing you have enough. And I just wanna suggest today that Jesus wants to set you free from this. What does he say? You cannot serve both God and money. You will love one and despise the other. Only one will be king of your life. Who is the king of yours? God is only really our functional savior as long as he doesn't affect our lifestyle with finances. But as soon as that starts to happen, we find out really who is the king and who is the Lord. Friends, who is the one you love and who is the one you despise? I'm happy to despise money because I wanna love Jesus. And so money is the tool that God uses to see His kingdom come in my life and in His world. Timothy Keller would say it like this. How do you know that money isn't just money to you? Here are some of the signs. You can't give large amounts away. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who have worked harder or might be a better person then, and it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you have one foot in the the trap because then it's no longer just a tool, it's the scorecard. It's your essence, your identity. No matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. And here's what Jesus has taught me, friends. Generosity is the antidote to greed. When the world says, hold on, God says, give away. And so I just wanna say today, what does the rhythm of generosity look like in your life and how's it pointed towards God's goodness and the Gospel? Maybe you're here today and you're like, Michael, things are really tight. Like we've got no minds in, we're struggling to put food on the table. The Bible's clear, give within your means. Friends, if that's where you're at today and to give would be under compulsion, not joy. Can I say, that is not what God is wanting right now. Can you make yourselves known to us so we as a community might be able to come around you. But I wanna suggest on the Gold Coast, in Rabina. There are people here today that a 10th tenth, a tenth is like, that's pressure. But there are some of you here today that a 10th is like a day less on a holiday. And, and I just wonder if Jesus is just starting to say, greed has more of a control of your life than I do. Will you step into my freedom or stay in your kingdom? And if you're like at a place right now where you're saying, Michael, I do not trust the church. Well, would you follow God's command to be generous to the poor? To someone in your world? Because I think it's valid and if that's where you are, I want to talk with you about that moment, about why there's a lack of trust in. We might pray together, not so you might give to the church, but God might set you free from that pain. But there are people here today who the real reason why we're not generous with our life is because greed has a hold. Greed has a hold. What would it look like if we were a church that wasn't just passionate about sexual conservative ethics, but liberal generosity? Where we were known for scandalous giving. Recently, storms ravaged the Gold Coast, and it was my pride moment as a pastor that we, as a church, through New Life Care, give $10,000 to rebuild to offer help, to to feed people who had no food. Why? Because people in this church are generous. But I wonder if there's still a call for some of us to be set free, to be set free. Tim Keller, he's made a lot of appearances in this sermon. When asked, how generous should someone be? We said, Tim Keller, how generous should you be? And he simply said this, it's the best line for I think any follower of Jesus. He said, a little bit more generous than I am right now. What a great starting point for us today. Friends, what has control of your life? The freedom of His kingdom or the tyranny of this world? Would you pray with me? Would you stand? Jesus, we come before You now and in this moment, we just bow our heads. We we'll wait upon You. Friends, if you're here today, you're new to church or Christianity and you're saying, Michael, I feel the sting and poison of greed in my life. I don't know Jesus, but if He's got a better way to live, I wanna repent, turn, ask for forgiveness. I want that life, that John 10, 10 life. If you're here today and you're saying, Michael, I want to know Jesus and the love and the freedom He has. I don't want to build this kingdom in this world anymore. I want to be part of His kingdom. That's you today. And you want to respond to the call of Jesus to be free and on purpose for Him. Would you just raise your hand right now, wherever you are. Love to pray for you. It's awesome. Love to pray for you. Raise your hand right now. Thank you, Jesus. So Lord God, I pray for those hands that are raised. And Lord Jesus, I pray in, that in Your Name that they would not just be set free to, to give money. Lord Father, I pray they'd be set free to give their life. They would come to You with all they have. And if you've got your hand raised, just repeat these words after me with everyone in the room. Dear Jesus, with everyone in the room. Dear Jesus, set me free from greed. Forgive me of my sins. Teach me to follow You with my whole life. From this point forward, in Jesus' Name, Amen. Lord Jesus, I pray that they would right now experience the freedom of Your Kingdom, freedom from worry, freedom from shame, and the beauty of forgiveness. And uh, just for the rest of us, someone came up to me at the end of the service and just sensed that God was saying this for our church, saying that for some of us right now, this is um, the wrong message to hear. And it's not been pleasant. And in so many ways, this person said that makes it the right message to hear. That it's, it's, it's putting salt in all the wrong wounds at the moment. It's just like, God, oh, what are you doing? And I just sense that if you finish Matthew chapter 6, it finishes with this beautiful part that says, do not worry about tomorrow. Do not worry about provision. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Friends, what would it look like for us to be a church where people can say, I've been set free from greed? Friends, if you, like the pastor down the front, are saying, God, there are still parts of greed in my heart, my life, that have a grip. If you want to be set free and confess that today, would you just open your hands in front of you right now? Just open your hands in front of you. Lord Jesus. I pray for all of us who are bold enough to just say, God, I want to repent of this. Lord, I pray, would you teach us to live a rhythm of generosity that is reflective of your kingdom, your life, and your goodness? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you, Jesus set us free, that we might reflect Your generosity. In Jesus' Name. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you, or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.